Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. My name is Beth AQ. A pleasure to be with you here on The Glass House. I begin by acknowledging that we broadcast on stolen unceded lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to you if you're a First Nations person tuning in this afternoon. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, in just under 10 minutes, um, I'm going to be exploring uh, a new project from ACCA. It is a multifaceted project of exhibitions and programs exploring the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space and the character and composition of public life. It is called Who's Afraid of Public Space? Uh, And joining me in just a little while to speak about it, I have the Senior Curator from ACCA, Miriam Kelly, plus Associate Professor and Director of XYX Lab, Dr Nicole Carms. And later in the show, I'll be joined by local writer Fatima Meisham to speak about her latest essay in Mianjin called What We Mean When We Say We Love Animals. It's a uh, very thoughtful meditation on human-animal encounters uh, and care and the effects of colonisation on how we treat animals. Very, very interesting I hope you can stay with me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Who's Afraid of Public Space is a new multifaceted project of exhibitions and programs by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, also known as ACCA. It explores the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space and the character and composition of public life itself, engaging with contemporary art and cultural practices to consider critical ideas as to what constitutes constitutes public culture and to ask who it might be for. Joining me to speak about it, I'm very excited to be joined by Senior Curator from ACCA, Miriam Kelly, uh, plus Associate Professor and Director of XYX Lab, Dr Nicole Carms. Thank you both so much for your time. Thanks so much, Beth. Lovely to be here. Uh, So Miriam, we might uh, start with you. You know, over the last couple of years, the way that people have engaged uh, with public space has transformed radically, obviously, due to the pandemic. I I remember for myself, I know, being in the depths of lockdown, you know, the paths along the Mary Creek are just absolutely packed, people getting out there, exercising within their five kilometre radius. How has that reality of the last few years impacted the way that this project was conceived of? Oh, it's such a great question. And and thank you. Um, This exhibition really began uh, in late 2018, early 2019. We'd been thinking a lot about public space, particularly things like 
the global debates about, you know, incursions of private interest in public space. We had, you know, the Apple Centre wanting to, you know, pop up in Federation Square. But we also had really um, intense debates in the, the media about what we should and should not fear. And so those, um, those kinds of works and the really amazing projects that we'd been seeing globally were, were the starting point for the exhibition. Yeah. Um, as you've explained, the last couple of years have radically changed the way we think about public space and they radically changed the exhibition as well. We got smaller and smaller in terms of our focus and our border um, by the nature of the way we've had to work. Um, but we've also been really um, motivated and excited. Um, so a lot of the conversations that we had curatorially with um, the three curators of the exhibition, Max Delaney, the CEO of, of ACCA, um, Annika Christensen, our curator at large, um, myself, but also our incredible advisory group who are artists and curators and academics working in this space, um, really was what is public space? What does it mean um, in Australia now? And, and then increasingly, what does it mean in Victoria? So we really brought the focus into the remit that we could access over mm -hmm. the last couple of years uh, and the kinds of conversations that we're having that are particular to our country, our location and the, and the land that we're um, occupying mm. at the moment. I am really interested in that kind of curatorial model, the way that you're kind of collaborating um, with a bunch of amazing artists, with collectives. Can you tell me a bit about what that collaboration looks like in practice? Yeah, um, perhaps maybe I could explain the, the format of the exhibition first with, um, to help explain how we've worked with people. Um, so the exhibition is a, it's really a three-part project. We've got um, uh, a way of engaging with what it means to be a civic institution at ACCA and we've um, invited four design groups and curators to um, make our spaces spaces for public gathering and discourse, um, for reflection um, and learning. Um, so we've got a, a gathering space for public forums um, designed by um, Naui, Carolyn Briggs and Sarah Lynn Reese, and that's um, to address the fact that we don't necessarily have an auditorium at ACCA. Mm -hmm. We've got a reading space that um, has been designed by Nicola Cortese, Lauren Crockett and Stephanie Parnas, which has gathered um, material from a public call-out, thinking about what it means to be a um, a public library and to generate um, opportunities for people to learn more and so it's a really comfortable beautifully designed space um, and all of those books will go to the Melbourne Art Library um, as an outcome uh, and we've got an education space um, in which we've um, been able to bring together um, uh, the ideas that ACCA's education program have of talking about art, thinking about it and making um, with a small exhibition of propositional public art, a studio space and then display for the student work that's made in the space mm. and then a space designed by sibling architecture that um, reflects all the projects that happen out in the public realm including those that ACCA has um, curated um, and Nikki will speak to one of those uh, but also the work that we've um, been very lucky to be able to do over this um, period of time when we haven't been able to go and travel a lot and really working closely with cultural um, organisations across Melbourne um, and they've curated a whole range of um, exhibitions and programs as well. So we've got um, eight uh, public um, cultural partners um, and a couple of those projects will come to, to fore over the next couple of weeks with um, uh, Chunky Move presenting a work on the ACA Forecourt um, on this Saturday night um, this 5th of November. Uh, oh my God, what week are we in, <laughs> in February? And um, and then uh, take over uh, social studios and outer urban projects, um, work with a fashion parade on Parliament House steps. So we 
the, the conception of the project was really with that curatorial advisory group and that was um, going around talking about what is public space, what does it mean, um, who are the people working in this space, which is how we came um, to be working across art, um, cultural practice, academia and design. Uh, and that was a really uh, incredibly generative process um, and, and it, extraordinarily valuable. Um, we can't work in, in ways um, that deal with such enormous uh, complex issues such as you know, public space, public culture and who's it for without mm. um, drawing on the, the knowledge of incredible experts um, such as our advisory group. Does mm. that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I suppose speaking of one of these many outdoor projects, um, we're very lucky also to be joined uh, on the line by Nicole Carms, who is the founding director of XYX Lab, um, which is a team of uh, design researchers exploring gender-sensitive design practices and theory. Um, Nicole, I might pass over to you. Before we kind of speak about the, the work that you have created for this project, can you tell me a little bit about XYX Lab and, and what you aim to do? Sure. So we're a research lab based at Monash University and, as you say, we're a team of architects, communication designers and scholars that are really... Uh, thinking about how we can advocate for women and gender diverse people in the LGBTIQ plus community when we're thinking about designing urban public places. And we use really particular methods to do that. So we're deeply engaged in co-design, so voicing the experiences of those that may not often be heard by policymakers and um, architects, etc. And we're very interested in using design as a transformative method. So we're not obsessed with objects and buildings, but we're really interested in thinking about how design can be used to um, uh, activate um, and indeed kind of encourage other people to be advocates for um, sensitive design in public places. Mm. It's, it's incredibly interesting and so far out of my fields. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, the project that you're doing for uh, Who's Afraid of Public Space? It's called Keep Running. Uh, it's a poster and billboard project that uses the, your uh, research of experiences of gender-based violence to kind of showcase those experiences in certain geographical locations. Can you tell me a bit about, I suppose, the research behind this and then how you kind of conveyed it through this project? Yeah, sure. So the, the foundational research is really social research, which has surveyed women and gender diverse people uh, and kind of mapped their perceptions of safety, in this case across Victoria. We do work internationally in other cities, but in this case the research is based on Victorian experiences. So we were kind of thinking about what are the experiences of public open places. It was actually within a COVID context and those kinds of ideas that you were talking about at the very beginning, Beth, about access to recreational spaces and those kind of changed feelings around public space and who has the privilege to access it was really part of that story. Mm. So the work that we've proposed for Who's Afraid of Public Space is part of that distributed and dispersed program um, occupying over 200 sites across Melbourne and, as you say, as a poster campaign. And can you tell me, uh, I suppose, specifically about some of the posters themselves and what, kind of, mm. what kinds of messages they're, they're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, keep running and the posters and billboards that um, we're working with across Melbourne. I think there's uh, the major kind of key sites are in South Bank, in Clayton, St Kilda, but there's 200 paste-ups that maybe some of your listeners have seen. And, for example, the Keep Running poster, which is kind of like the, um, the, the, the kind of highlight project, is really about a story that was shared through our social research, um, a woman describing her experiences of an underpass, and within her story she says, actually, you know, the only thing you can keep 
that you can do in this space is to keep running. And it's a very provocative and indeed quite concerning um, uh, thing to share, but honestly it is reflected time and again in the research that we do. Mm. Another poster is called um, The Pack Could Turn, which is about um, a gender diverse person's experience in an alleyway and just really trying to maintain kind of control of themselves within a place that was kind of quite volatile. Um, there are some good messages that we're, we're kind of sending out there as well. So uh, a discussion around uh, um, someone contributing an experience in public space where they really liked it and they said, I can see ahead. So that's perhaps a more optimistic campaign. But I think the trick with the posters that um, uh, the lab has designed is that they're absolutely beautiful and they kind of belie the kind of content which is really concerning and speaks to some of those gender inequity issues that we um, are really kind of concerned with with the XYX lab. If you have just joined us, we are chatting all about Who's Afraid of Public Space. It's a new multifaceted project of exhibitions and programs that is uh, running by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art uh, and a bunch of partners. Um, Nicole, just on that, I think... um, you know, I've seen the uh, the billboard of uh, Keep Running just on my computer screen, but I imagine <laughs> seeing the scale of um, a billboard, something like that, would be incredibly impactful. W- what is mm. the intended effect of of, um, of them when people see them? Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's something that we have talked a lot about, and we even talked about it with the curators um, at ACCA. You know, what does it mean to describe an experience of feeling unsafe in the places where that's happening, does that contribute to people feeling unsafe and, you know, what are our kind of ethical responsibilities and, you know, to the point of the exhibition, it's quite complex. Um, But we've also, in our kind of co-design methodology, we speak to women and girls and gender diverse people about this exact issue all the time and time and again, they want their voices amplified and they want their stories heard. So um, I think that's partly why... You know, there's that subtlety around the aesthetic quality that Jean Borden, who is the um, my co-director in the X-ray Fab and the designer of the posters, there's that kind of subtlety around they look beautiful, but when you look closer, you're going to kind of uncover that something that may be unsettling. Uh, and and I would I would restate that there are lots of crappy experiences that women and gender diverse people are having, not just in Melbourne but everywhere. And we really need to think about how we're addressing those complex. Um, discussions and they're not simple and they're not straightforward but we do think that this particular work and the the many works within this particular um, project are a call to action for us to think very carefully about what we do in terms of gender sensitivity in public spaces and I should say that the foundational research was in partnership with Respect Victoria and with 23 councils across Victoria who are also invested in it. So they are keen to make sure that they're doing better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's um, a really important thing to acknowledge as well. Mm. And, I mean, there's something undeniable about a billboard that you just can't ignore. So I just imagine yeah. that so many people will really stop and think um, because of these kind of provocations. So, it's yeah, it sounds like you're doing really amazing work. Um, I'd love to, I suppose, talk a little bit more about some of the other projects, um, Miriam, that are happening as part um, of this very big uh, project. Something that stood out to me um, was probably because I'm thinking about walking along the Merry Creek every day. Um, there is this uh, Six Walks audio tour, which was, uh, it, which is developed as a narrative response to different parts of the city. Can you tell me a little bit about um, that project and how you think it encourages listeners to engage differently in those public spaces? Yeah, amazing. Thanks, Beth. Um, 
one of the things that we did in the lead up to the project was run a number of conversations and we called them think tanks and also develop projects in advance. So we had a um, a billboard actually in a space that um, is now occupied by a billboard of Keep Running, um, a billboard by Kent Morris, which um, was in St Kilda and, and talked about, uh, you know, never alone, but also walking um, that region and thinking about um, moving through public space was an enormous part of um, the, those discussions at the time, particularly when it was so limited, but but also with the, the wider complexities that um, Nikki's also spoken to. So that the discussion Discussion about six walks was um, partly in relation to um, the experiences we've all had of, of COVID, and you've just described one of those beautifully walking along the Mary Creek. Um, uh, it's probably a space that someone people have discovered um, for the first time over over these lockdowns. But also thinking about the stories that are embedded within um, the many areas of, of Melbourne that are both walked and, and not walked. Um, so it was. Uh, really an experience of, of inviting writers who um, work uh, with storytelling um, and, and also the, the local histories, um, personal and um, uh, and wider histories of, of our um, city uh, and encouraging people to reflect on those but also to, to have the opportunity to walk them with those writers. So um, the Mary Creek one is, is of course, told um, uh, by the incredible storyteller Tony Birch. Um, you can also walk through the CBD with Christos Cholkis uh, and from um, the Arts Centre, uh, from Acker to the Arts Precinct um, with uh, Eleanor Jackson, um, Idil Ali actually takes a really beautiful journey um, through the Carlton housing estate. Uh, and so you really get a sense of the different uh, ideas of what public space means to writers um, and to thinkers uh, and how um, our experiences of those really um, uh, can be transformed by the stories of others. Mm. I think it's a really interesting project and it sounds I'm really excited to, to listen more to them. Uh, it does make me think about how we're using digital tools to kind of activate different public spaces. Um, and, you know, I think it's no surprise that most or a lot of office workers are still kind of working from home. And I know somebody that's kind of spent, you know, a couple of years in one room. You kind of miss the chance encounters that you that happen when you're just in a public space. I'm interested, I suppose, in in the kind of curatorial thinking of this of this big project that you're doing. How has the kind of digital realm of connection impacted the way that we think about public culture? Oh, it's a huge question and I think one that we only really have touched the surface on in terms of the realisation of the project. Um, it's definitely one that we're continuing to explore as an outcome of conversations we've had and also as a, an outcome of our ambition to um, really uh, augment the work of, of ACA Beyond Walls. We have a new, a new philosophy around um, moving um, projects with, you know, outside of the walls of the gallery as well as the work we do in the gallery. Um, one of the works that I might point to in terms of our thinking when we were thinking about um, what is public space was um, about the media and about um, technology. And, and Stephen Rahl, um, a Wuthering artist, um, has developed a project, a really beautiful conceptual project um, that, that questions, I suppose, what we think of in, pub in terms of public space. Um, uh, it's a it's a Wi-Fi project, so at the moment you can um, drop into Acker and, and if you join the Wi-Fi, um, you can approach um, 
Stephen's project and, and you can join Aboriginal Land is the name of the, we've changed the name of the ACA Wi-Fi and then Stephen also invites you to change your own personal hotspot Wi-Fi uh, to kind of extend the project beyond the, the realms of um, the ACA building. Mm. Um, and it really talks to that sense of um, what, what public space is beyond the, the ground that we're walking on and perhaps the waters that we're um, uh, approaching, but to also the, the you know the ether and the the kind of invisible um, nature and that that still is uh, you know Aboriginal land. Um, so I think that the technology side of it, I mean we've all as you said we were we were very interested to think about um, you know how the public square has become the digital square if you like. Um, uh, but in terms of um, programming, it was also really important for us to balance. Um, uh, having a lot of content um, that engaged with, with, we have a lot of programs, um, we ran a lot of di uh, discussions, uh, but to also invite people back out into into the world and, and to gather. And uh, when I think one of the most joyous examples of um, projects that have encouraged people back out um, to, to celebrate together and, and commune um, post individual experiences of um, perhaps you've done karaoke at home by yourself, but we can now <laughs> jo join together and we've we've got a series of um, karaoke events by Huang Tran Nguyen, um, which have been... Uh, you know, a really great communing post uh, post the isolation you've just um, described. I love that. It is, as you said, a real invitation to kind of get back out and activate these spaces, come together. Um, I know that uh, the, the whole project itself has been running since the start of December. This is probably a question for both of you. Um, I'm interested in how you've seen people respond to these works as it's uh, been happening for um, a, yeah, a month or so now. Maybe I'll, um, I'll throw to you, Nicole. Yeah, I mean, it's been fascinating because we um, really like to work with social media to help activate our projects beyond the sites themselves. And so we've just started to collect all the crazy videos that people have sent us of them interacting with the pay stubs, et cetera, um, which is really kind of fun and kind of gives us a very street kind of image of the work that we're doing. Yeah. Um, we're also really keen, at the as we draw to the end of the exhibition, we'll be doing a workshop at ACCA where we're engaging with the general public who may have previously come into contact with the work where they're going to come in and do some design workshops with us about how to make public and inclusive places. So we're also really looking forward to that interaction. Mm. Yeah, it must be nice to have that kind of feedback for the people that you're activating these spaces for. Um, and Miriam, what about you? What's it been like so far to, to have it received by the public? Uh, similarly, really, really fantastic. We've had lots of um, really uh, rich conversations, um, uh, both at ACCA and at the events off um, offsite, and with our partners uh, as well. Um, I think one of the, the really um, rich dialogues has really been about the gathering space, um, Nagi Jambana, which um, uh, is thinking about what you know the provocation of what would it be if our public spaces were made from the materials of the country that we're on, uh, and I think that that as kind of the key commission for that large um, commissioning hall at ACCA um, starts the, the dialogue and, and has really um, inspired a lot of very. Um, uh, deep thinking um, and, and kind of a, an experience that people have might not have had um, at ACCA when they um, usually come. So it's been um, it's been great. We've also really enjoyed having a um, the reading space uh, meeting room um, and the kinds of conversations that have come from learning about cataloging um, and spending time with with the rich array of publications there. So you know it's been it's been fantastic. Uh, but we've also been incredibly lucky to be um, programming in the public realm at a time when it's been, you know, 
touch and go <laughs> about, about gathering again. So it's been, um, we've been very lucky. Mm. Uh, well, I just want to say a big thank you, Miriam Kelly uh, and Nicole Carms. Thank you so much uh, for your time this afternoon. Thanks, Beth. Thanks, Beth. Uh, senior Curator from ACCA, Miriam Kelly, plus Associate Professor and Director of XYX Lab, Dr Nicole Carms there, speaking all about Who's Afraid of Public Space? It is a new multifaceted project of exhibitions and programs by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Uh, you might know it as ACCA. It does explore the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space and the character and composition of public life itself. It is on now. Uh, it's happening until March. 20 at ACCA and places right across Melbourne. You can head to ACCA's website to find out more. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. So what do Australians mean when they say they love animals? In the 1970s, various endemic mammals were designated as state emblems. The koala in Queensland, the platypus in New South Wales, the leadbeater's possum in Victoria, the southern hairy-nosed wombat in South Australia and the numbat in Western Australia. But their numbers have only declined in the decades since. What kind of love is this? That is an excerpt there of Fatima Misham's latest essay for Mianjin called What We Mean When We Say We Love Animals. It's a beautiful meditation on human animal encounters, care and colonialism. Speaking to me all about it today, I do have a Filipino Catholic writer based on Wadawurrung country, Fatima Misham. Fatima, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's great to be here, Beth. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, Fatima, can we start by, uh, I'd love to know a little bit more about your relationship with animals. Have you always uh, had them around you growing up? Um, I didn't have pets um, per se. Um, I think when I was growing up, um, you know, in a, in, the, in a province in the southern island of Mindanao in the Philippines, pets weren't really uh, something that people tended to keep. Um, they tended to be like communal pets, so pets that were shared across the neighbourhood. So, you know, I would get cats and dogs and stuff like that. Um, but my dad, you know, would sometimes buy um, beds that were sold, you know, on the street. Um, we did have a cat once. Um, but I was always, like, really interested. Like, I remember spending an afternoon basically following a butterfly around, um, <laughs> you know, or trying to, I think I tried to buy chicks myself and, and I would buy fish and no one ever blinked um, whenever I brought an animal home. They just kind of went, oh, well, it's Fatima again. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I did, I did have, I think at one point I had hamsters too. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I'd always sort of had this, um, I was always drawn to animals, um, whether or not that was something that was actually part of our family culture. I was drawn to them. Mm. And, you know, quite a, a few years ago now, you decided to start an animal study certificate. Can you tell me what led you to that decision? Um, oh, look, you get to a certain age where you're like, you know, what am I, what am I, um, what have I missed? I mean, I guess it was, I guess I was going through a bit of a crisis as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, trying to sort of work out a more purposeful, a more purposeful way of being. I loved writing, um, you know, but I thought I, I sort of suddenly, I guess, remembered, you know, that little girl, you know, that just was just so, 
enamoured um, with animals. Mm. And so I thought I'd give that little girl a chance mm. to sort of see if she can live her dream. Um, so, yeah, it was the, the animal studies course was sort of a way of, of I guess, trying, trying to, um, I guess, yeah, precisely give, 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 give myself a chance mm. to see whether... Um, Basically, I mean, like I said, like I like, like I say in the essay, like I, I didn't really actually know where I wanted to be led. Only that I want wanted to be led. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you kind of go on to talk about starting to volunteer at a public reserve to kind of, you know, learn more about animals and yeah, get to know them better, I suppose. And and yeah, as you said, follow that desire or that instinct. What was that experience like for you when you started volunteering there? Uh, oh, look, it was obviously, um, you know, I sometimes call it like a, my Damascus moment. And sort of, it was sort of like a pivot. Um, I ended up making a pivot. Um, in terms of what the experience was like, it was really an experience of wonder and delight and joy. Um, you know, I sort of ended up encountering uh, spotted-tailed quoll, all sorts of birds, um, you know, eastern barred bandicoots. Um, and these are animals that people don't normally, you know, come across. I, I thought it was it was a privilege to be there um, as a volunteer. But I think I remember trying to sort of process, you know, the first few times I was there, and I think it was like I felt at home in my body, you know, in a really. I'm trying not to cry, but you know, there, mm. there was something about it, and and really the stuff that I was doing was. Just not even. I didn't get to cuddle animals, and this is the thing that I sometimes have to tell people that um, proximity to animals doesn't mean necessarily mean you know you, you get to cuddle them. I, the work that I did was basically you know raking, picking up poo, cleaning, lots and lots of cleaning and washing, and you know it wasn't. You get grotty at the end of the day, um, but I really felt at home in my body, and there was sort of it reoriented my sense of time as well. So. It was a really, really beautiful experience. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like it was a really profound experience for you. And, you know, go, going to your essay, you really do explore uh, that human-animal relationship. And as you said, a lot of people have that desire to touch animals and, and you write about it in relation to colonisation and that kind of need coming from a place of extraction, perhaps as opposed to love. Can you speak about some of those ideas? Um, I suppose, you know, as I started to be involved, um, particularly in husbandry, and started to learn more about the impact of colonization on our flora and fauna, um, and obviously that, you know, is inextricable from the experience of First Nations peoples um, who don't distinguish themselves from the land and, you know, um, the plants and animals with which they coexisted for so long. Um I guess as I got deeper into it, I, I, I examined how I was feeling. I mean, obviously, I felt, like, really cool about it. <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I, felt, I felt like I was so cool. Like, I get to sort of, you know, um, see these animals regularly. Um, but then I sort of interrogated myself, like, why should that feel good? Is it enough to feel good? Mm-hmm. You know, is it enough to sort of be thrilled? Um to be close to 
you know, like a bush tone curly or um, some other bird. Um, so I guess I just wanted to unpack that, I guess, because in, in most of the things I do, I try to sort of be consistent, to have some kind of consistency and authenticity, um, you know, not just, I guess, um, not, not to, I guess to not, to not be satisfied about feeling good about something. I don't know, maybe I overthink things. But then, you know, coming, jumping from that to then the, the observations that I would make of people. I know people, obviously, we have, um, we're hardwired to be drawn to nature, to animals. Um, and it manifests in all sorts of behaviors. So I guess I just started looking at, at that and pondering what it meant and whether there was sort of like a, more authentic, loving way to be mm. than just than just looking, you know. I think it makes complete sense, and I think you've you've made me question uh, it in myself. And I think it's a really good thing to question. You know, you really highlight the difference between love and and respect, and that sometimes respecting the animal is 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 love and that can be love but I, I think other people have kind of misguided ideas of what love can look like um can you I suppose talk to that idea of like what you learned about how you love animals um gosh um we can talk all day um <laughs> about this um in terms of what i sort of figured out i mean the reason why i just was so unsettled by the idea about like feeling good about love was that it's very it's a very self-absorbed state of being it's a bit sort of a self-referential you know self-centered way of being which is about your feelings mm-hmm. um so then um when i first started um I guess, exploring what that actually meant. I mean, it went back to the fact that even though, so for instance, you know, the work I'm doing with husbandry, um, you know, you end up being gaudy, you end up being tired. And I think there was something in there about how you have to put your body into it. And sometimes it's just like the most unglamorous thing. And it's repetitive and it feels like a very, very tiny thing. I mean, I guess moms, you know, moms who love their babies, just, you know, they, they would understand this perfectly, getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning, having to change um, nappy after nappy. But a, a lot of our relationships with others, I mean, at least the relationships that matter to us, there's a lot of stuff in there that actually requires, you know, some kind of transcendence, I guess, mm-hmm. Um so I guess that was one of the things I sort of realized that I could make myself get up early in the morning. And I'm not a morning person. Like, by, like I'm not remotely a morning person. But I, found, I think that was one of the things that I realized that something was happening mm. because I was getting up early enough to be there by 8, by 8 a.m. I'm like, mm, okay, something's going on here. And then for me to come home at the end of the day really tired and, and, and grotty, like I thought there was another sort of thing as well. Um, and I think, I suppose, as far as love goes, I think I, I tend to see it as in the same way that I, I think of faith and I think of science, which is that it's it's a never-ending sort of process or quest mm. or experience. I think love pulls away from absolutes. Mm. You know, love is is always something about. It, there's always I, I don't know, I'm, I'm sorry to be like really 
Catholic about this, <laughs> but um, I um, I was um, like a lot of my spiritual formation was was um, through the Jesuits, you know, Ignatian uh, spirituality. And the university that I went to was a, a Jesuit-founded university. And I remember one of the, the the key things that would be passed on to us was that idea of magis, that's M-A-G-I-S, that there's always more. You know, and it can be a challenge and it can be quite confronting. But I guess that's kind of sort of the shape of love, um, which I connect to, you know, the shape of science and the shape of faith, mm. which is that there's always something more. You can always be better at it. You can always sort of be more authentic and truer at it, mm. you know, and, and that, that requires humility, you know, and that requires courage. Um, and I suppose in the essay, that's why I end up talking about um, decoloniality, mm. um, because because so much of the colonial paradigm is about putting ourselves at the center, mm. and 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 the work of actually <laughs> stripping ourselves away, or you know at least stepping back from the center and considering the other more, whether it's an animal, you know, or another person. Mm. Um, it's it's a lot of work you know um so i guess i don't know maybe i'm saying that love is also work mm. but i don't know but there's joy in it as well obviously it's sort of like this thing that sustains itself um when you're tired when you're feeling grotty when you feel like um something you know when, when you feel like hope is a bit slim you know it's the thing that sustains you i suppose mm. i think you've touched on something so important there which sounds like this kind of the shifting priority of needs, you know, you perhaps at one, like at one point your need for caring or, or touching the animal or other people's needs for doing that feels more important. But then I suppose the inverse of that, what you said, thinking about how you can, uh, yeah, gain that humility and, and distance yourself from it. I think an interesting example that you touch on in your essay is you know you write about a family who's moved from the city to a coastal region who then took down all the trees on their property and there were these yellow-tailed black cockatoos that went away and you know just it's a very good example of showing the disconnection between the land and the animals and uh, in contrast to what the the human needs are and always seeing that the human needs often come out on top I love that idea of um, decolonial love and, and it as a way to kind of move towards love and it being a kind of ongoing process. Can you just speak a little bit more about um, what you mean by that process and, and love as a decolonial project? Um, well, you know, uh, taking those yellow-tailed black cockatoos and the fact that this family um, re- removed the trees from which they actually feed and um, on which they, you know, roost and shelter. Um, I think I think it requires seeing um, in context. So, you know, so for instance, um, I mean, I guess the koalas have been on the news quite a bit because they've finally been listed um, as endangered. Um, you know, it's it's not yet to just see like this this koala as an animal like in order to actually i guess love it in full you have to see its entire context Mm. what allows it to thrive what conditions are required so that this animal continues to exist and that's the same in our relationships right like when you look at a person you have to see them in their entire context you can't just like select the things that are are comfortable for you you know to 
to consume or to sit with. Um, and I guess the other side, I mean, the, uh, just to add to that too, um, I think it's about, I mean, the, if there's anything I've, I've learned about, you know, husbandry, proper care of animals, ensuring their welfare, I think the standards for welfare these days is about what will enable that animal or group atom, of group of animals to be most themselves. Mm. Um, what's gonna, what is it going to take for them to be the fullest versions of themselves? And if that means, you know, stepping back a bit, um, then that's, that's what it's going to take. Um, and, and I kind of sort of see those parallels in terms of, for instance, our, our relationships with um, First Nations people. You know, like I live on Wadurong country, and, and I'm sort of trying to really step into uncomf- uncomfortable or uneasy spaces for myself in terms of what that relationship will, will look like. You know, how, how will I contribute to a space or a time when um, Indigenous peoples can be the fullest versions of themselves because that's what love takes. You know, that's that's what's demanded. I guess mm-hmm. um, if I'm going to be authentic about what I mean when I love animals in the same way that I love um, people. Um, and I guess as a migrant citizen, you know, I mean that's the other context as well. Like I'm, I'm, I've barely arrived on this continent, um, so. I'm not sure if I've answered your question now. <laughs> you, you have. Um, you definitely have. And I think you've um, given, yeah, almost this really beautiful definition of love, um, love towards other people and also love for animals and how we should approach them um, ultimately in the same way of, of respecting people to be, I think you said, the best versions of themselves. And I think that's, uh, that's so beautiful and spot on. Um, Fatima, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, Fatima Misham, they're talking about her new essay in the engine called What We Mean When We Say We Love Animals. You're listening to Triple R. Triple R. That's right, you are listening to Triple R. It's almost time for me to get on out of here for another day. I do want to say big thanks to my guests. Senior Curator from ACA, Miriam Kelly, and Director of XYX Lab, Nicole Carms, for speaking to me all about ACA's new multi-dimensional project, uh, Who's Afraid of Public Space? Also, a big thank you to Fatima Misham there for talking to me about her most recent essay. I'll catch you next week, but make sure you keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website.